Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Tadekam smaramas, tadekam hajamaha, tadekam jagat sakshi rupam namamaha, sadekam nidhanam niralam bamisham, bhavam bodhipotam sharanyam rajamaha. Om shanti shanti shanti. On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship. To that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our soul eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across this ocean of this world, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning to all of you. Wonderful to be back after a long time and after many of you have passed through a kind of valley of death. And uh, what a wonderful way to start our talk with this uh, thrilling verses of the Upanishads from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, uh, famously quoted by Swami Vivekananda at his talk on Hinduism in Chicago. Hear ye children of immortal bliss, I have found the ancient one. Knowing him alone, shall we cross over this world and attain to immortality. Knowing him alone, ye children of immortal bliss. It kind of encapsulates Swami Vivekananda's message too. And that's why I titled the talk today, the Vivekananda Upanishad because Vivekananda's words so resonate with the Upanishads, they are like Upanishads. He's always quoting the Upanishads, and then even some of his words have become like a new Upanishad. So uh, let's back up just a moment and uh, remind ourselves, what are we talking about, Upanishads? Upanishads are the foundational scriptures of Vedanta. Going back into prehistory, we don't know exactly when they were composed because they were passed down orally from uh, teacher to student for perhaps for uh, centuries or even millennia. Uh, the word itself, Upanishad, we, the uh, grammarians break it up, Upa plus Ni plus Sad. Sad means, actually, it means to sit. And Upa means close by and Ni means below. So the meaning is to sit at the feet of the teacher. And what do we learn when we sit at the feet of the spiritual master? We learn who we really are. Who is God? What is God? Is there something behind this universe that is permanent, that is real? And so this is what the Upanishad means, sitting at the feet of the spiritual masters and receiving the teachings. And uh, one of the great commentators on the Upanishads says, well, what is that knowledge? Shankara. We're talking about Shankara. He says, it's the knowledge of Brahman, knowledge of that one infinite principle, which is our true nature. And the Upanishad shatters the ignorance of those who approach it with firmness. 
We don't know Brahman because we are ignorant of it. We don't know our true nature because our minds are covered with ignorance. And a secondary meaning of the word sad is to destroy. So Shankaracharya takes this meaning of Upanishad, that which destroys our ignorance. The Upanishads are the utterances of the seers, the ancient people who are people just like us, human beings, embodied, who began to ask questions. What is this universe? Is there anything behind this universe? Who am I really? Is there anything to me besides a body and a mind? And they made remarkable discoveries. Yes, there is something. There is more to me than body and mind. I have a soul. I am a soul who has a body and a mind. And there is a God. There is some higher reality. And as they explored further, they went so far as to discover that who I am and what God is actually are not two. It's one infinite reality. So they, they made this, this remarkable discovery and then they didn't keep it to themselves. They taught others. They taught others of this remarkable discovery, which brought them infinite peace and infinite joy. And uh, their, through their compassion, we have the scriptures. Otherwise, they could also just have made this discovery and said, okay, I've discovered it. Have fun, guys. I'm, I'm going to just stay in that state. No, they also want everyone to realize the truth. Uh, and they expressed their realizations and their instructions in very powerful verses. Of course, the language was Sanskrit in those days. And often it's, it reaches to the, the kind of sublime poetry, which has the power to awaken understanding in those who hear it. The truth is expressed in such direct terms that these, these utterances actually have great spiritual power to awaken us, to help us to realize the truth. That's why they're considered to be such holy books. They're not, it's not just speculations. Yes, in some of the older Upanishads, there are also some metaphysical speculations. There are still some vestiges of myths that creep in. But the essence of the Upanishads is the direct teachings of who we are, and they have this power to awaken us to that which is our very own self, our true nature. How to attain that, how to know that, how to realize that. So first they establish the truth and then teach us how to realize it. Not just an intellectual understanding. We can have an intellectual understanding and we have to start with that. That's where we start. But to actually know it without a doubt, to see it, like a fruit in the palm of one's hand. So the teachers of Vedanta describe three steps. I think most of us are familiar with this, those of us who have been studying Vedanta for a while. Three steps in this amazing undertaking that we uh, have embarked upon to know ourselves as we really are. First, we have to hear the truth. We have to hear about it. If we don't know about it, then chances are we're not going to stumble upon it. We have to seek. We have to hear. Shravana is the term. We have to hear about it. Then we have to think about it. 
and we have to convince ourselves, at least on an intellectual level, that it's true. If we hear about it and we just discount it, it's not going to have the desired effect. So we think about it. That's called manana, shravana, hearing, manana, thinking about it, convincing ourselves that, yes, these rishis, they uh, discovered truth. All the teachers since then have been teaching these same truths and have been corroborating them. Great spiritual masters have been born in every age. And in this age, we have masters like Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda and others who have uh, assured us that they also have seen, realized the same truth and that we also can realize it. All right, Manana, we have established ourselves in a certain intellectual conviction. Then comes meditation. Nididhyasana, we have to struggle to realize the truth ourselves. To know it directly, it takes struggle. Actually, for the qualified student, the one who has uh, developed certain prerequisites of uh, intense faith, uh, a strong conviction in the truth of the teacher, of the scriptures, and knowing, having really made it clear to the mind what is eternal, what is impermanent, develop a great detachment from all the things of the world. Uh, for such a student, hearing the truth is enough. Hearing the truth and the realization comes like a flash in the mind and they realize, yes, I am that infinite reality. I am infinite peace. I am infinite joy. But the qualifications, the bar is set pretty high. So most of us, we might not reach to that level yet. So after hearing the truth, we have to think about it, convince ourselves of its truth, and then meditate on it. We take a verse, meditate on it, memorize it, meditate on it, live it, make it our own. So uh, Swami Vivekananda, I feel, is like one of those ancient rishis, one of those ancient seers, born uh, in our time, almost in our time, left the body in 1902, a student of the modern world. He had a, a Western education. He had a very scientific mind, a doubting mind. He wasn't going to accept anything unless he knew it for himself to be true. So very much like us. And he, his words carry tremendous power, the power to awaken us from the sleep of ignorance and the power to, to help us face the challenges of life. He helped to, to solve the dilemmas which we face in life. As the Upanishads are the records of the conversations between the masters and their students. So also most of the re recorded teachings of Swami Vivekananda are the same. They are the records of his conversations with students, either in giving lectures or in personal conversation one-on-one -on -one that people wrote down, or also in letters. He had a, has a voluminous correspondence also. So like that, his teachings also are records of conversations. Uh, now, they're expressed, of course, mostly in English, which makes them so accessible to us. And one of our very senior monks made the beautiful comment that, uh, of course, Sanskrit, the Sanskrit language is considered a very holy language because all the 
truths of the scriptures are expressed in that language. And it has, it ha has been developed, the vocabulary has developed to uh, express so many subtle metaphysical principles. So it's, a, it's considered a holy language. This Swami said that English has been turned into a holy language because Swami Vivekananda expressed the highest spiritual truths in English. So English now is also a holy language. Vivekananda himself was deeply grounded in the Upanishads. He said, I preach only the Upanishads. If you look, you will find that I have never quoted anything but the Upanishads. And of the Upanishads, it is only that one idea, strength. The quintessence of Vedas and Vedanta and all lies in that one word. So I want to take up one such conversation of Swami Vivekananda today, which really reads to me like an Upanishad. And I actually printed out some extra copies of the nugget of it, the, the essence of it, uh, so uh, you can take it with you. This is a glorious ode, a glorious peon to the glory of our own soul. It's, uh, we can say it's a gem placed in the setting of his very human love and affection. On the one hand, it's entirely transcendent, and yet, especially when we know the context, it's in this beautiful setting of his very intimate relationship with his American sister, Mary Hale. And let's just recall the context. The Hale family was the first family who befriended Vivekananda in Chicago when he had come for the Parliament of Religions, not knowing anybody. He got lost. He was sitting um, dejected on a, a stoop in front of a church. And Mrs. Hale came out and thought, probably he's come for the Parliament of Religions and invited him in. And they became his family. It's remarkable to see how that relationship of brother and sister with, there were four daughters in the Hale family, uh, actually two, two Hale daughters and two McKinley daughters. They all lived together, uh, cousins, uh, Mary and Harriet Hale and Isabel and Harriet McKinley. And that the Hale family's home became his home, his home base, to which he continually returned throughout his travels in uh, the West. And uh, in his letters to his sisters, we see also his human side, his deep love and affection for them, untouched by any trace of carnality. It's a real fraternal love. And he was able to open up to them and, and also re reveal to them what he couldn't reveal to his own brother disciples in India, some of his, uh, his doubts, his fears, his uh, feelings of loss and, and dejection. Yes, he could reveal those also. And yet interspersed in these letters, which often were filled with the kind of brotherly, sisterly chit-chat you would write to your own brother and sister, are the highest spiritual truths. Now... We know that on September 11, 1893, Vivekananda began uh, delivering his much needed message of the divinity of the soul and the harmony of religions. And all of 1894, he worked terribly hard all over the United States. That is maybe, I guess, east of the Mississippi River, probably. And his message was falling on very parched soil, like a, like a gentle rain falling on parched soil. 
and resonating so much with the American people. And yet, Vivekananda also had to face a tremendous backlash from uh, especially Christian missionaries who were finding that their funds for missionary work in India were drying up. Yes, because uh, Indians clearly do not need missionaries if they can send someone like Vivekananda to us. So, so much so that uh, one of his brother disciples related this incident. Vivekananda had told him it was at a dinner in Detroit. Detroit, there was a big fight with uh, some of the uh, Christian missionaries, a big fight, uh, which went into the newspapers even. Swamiji was at a dinner. He was about to drink his coffee after dinner, and he had a mystic vision of his spiritual master, Sri Ramakrishna, who warned him, don't drink that coffee, there's poison in it. Yes, there were attempts on his life. So this kind of struggle and fight he had to face. Now, in the midst of all this struggle, naturally, some of his letters to his sisters were expressing some of that, uh, <laughs> that fighting spirit. And uh, Mary felt a little, she, she didn't like that. She wrote him a kind of a scolding letter. And uh, we, we have uh, an excerpt of that. I'll read uh, that little excerpt. I did not intend answering your first letter. This is Mary Hale. I thought best to let the matter drop and have no more words on the subject. But now that the second one has come, beginning with the same story, full of the same spirit, not of love, but of hate, of revilings, of bitterness, and of rancor, I cannot but express myself. I confess, dear brother, to a feeling of terrible disappointment. Where is the great and glorious soul that came to the parliament of religions, so full of love of God that his face shone with divine light? whose words were fire, whose very presence created an atmosphere of harmony and purity, thereby drawing all souls to himself. So Mary took the liberty uh, as his sister of writing this uh, letter. And Vivekananda uh, wrote back a wonderful letter full of the spirit of the, the all-renouncing monk, and really coming down very hard on his sister, I will say. <laughs> and let me read a little bit of that letter. It's, uh, it's a long letter. This is a short excerpt, but it uh, gives you goosebumps to see the kind of power which Swami Vivekananda had. I am very glad of your criticisms, and I'm not sorry at all. The other day at Miss Thursby's, I had an excited argument with a Presbyterian gentleman who, as usual, got very hot, angry, and abusive. However, I was afterwards severely reprimanded by Mrs. Bull for this. This Mrs. Oli Bull, Sarah Bull, who was uh, one of, another one of Swami Vivekananda's great supporters. I was severely reprimanded by Mrs. Bull for this, as such things hinder my work. So it seems is your opinion. You are mistaken, utterly mistaken, if you think I have a work, as Mrs. Bull thinks. I have no work under or beyond the sun. I have a message, and I will give it after my own fashion. I will neither Hinduize my message, nor Christianize it, nor make it any eyes in the world. I will only my eyes it, and that is all. This kind of fire. And what is that message? Then he tells us what is that message. Liberty, mukti, is all my religion, and everything that tries to curb it I will avoid by fight or flight. Pooh, I try to pacify the priests. Sister, do not take this amiss. But you are babies, and babies must submit to be taught. 
You have not yet drunk of that fountain which makes reason unreason, mortal immortal, this world a zero and of man a god. Come out, if you can, of this network of foolishness they call this world. Then I will call you indeed brave and free. If you cannot, cheer those that dare dash this false god society to the ground and trample on its unmitigated hypocrisy. If you cannot cheer them, pray be silent, but do not try to drag them down again into this mire with such false nonsense as compromise and becoming nice and sweet. So that's actually a short excerpt from the letter. <laughs> Two weeks later, Swami Vivekananda wrote again. Probably he, he, he knew he'd been very hard on, on his dear sister. And uh, maybe he worried he'd been a little too harsh. So he wanted to assure her of his love, which anyhow she knew of. And how did he write? He wrote in verse. He wrote a poem. And it has two parts. The second part is uh, the this poem, which is now called the Song of the Free. It's more than a poem. It's a, it's a kind of ode to the glory of the soul. Uh, the first part is uh, uh, maybe reconciling with Mary, and let me read it out. Now, Sister Mary, you need not be sorry for the hard raps I gave you. You know full well, though you like me tell, with my whole heart I love you. The babies I bet the best friends I met will stand by me in weal and woe, and so will I do. You know it too. Life, name, or fame, even heaven forego for the sweet sisters four. Talking about the four sisters. Sans reproche et sans peur. The truest, noblest, steadfast, best. So this introduction it touches the heart because he's expressing his deep love in a way that only he could do. This, uh, though you like me, tell with my whole heart I love you. And how he will stand by them, giving up everything in that, that kind of love uh, for the sweet sisters for, without any reproach, without any fear. He's putting a little French in his poem. So uh, the, the, the setting of the poem is this wonderfully intimate uh, love between brother and sister. And then the poem itself, I'll try to read it without uh, getting too excited. Because that then it totally shifts, he totally shifts gear here and presents his message kind of distills his message into this, this, uh, let's read it. The wounded snake, its hood unfurls, the flame stirred up doth blaze. The desert air resounds the calls of heart-struck lion's rage. The cloud puts forth its deluge strength when lightning cleaves its breast. When the soul is stirred to its inmost depth, great ones unfold their best. Let eyes grow dim and heart grow faint and friendship fail and love betray. Let fate its hundred horrors send and clotted darkness block the way. All nature wear one angry frown to crush you out. Still, know, my soul, you are divine. March on and on, nor right nor left, but to the goal. Nor angel I, nor man, nor brute, 
nor body, mind, nor he, nor she. The books do stop in wonder mute to tell my nature. I am he. Before the sun, the moon, the earth, before the stars and comets free, before e'en time has had its birth, I was, I am, and I will be. The beauteous earth, the glorious sun, the calm sweet moon, the spangled sky, causation's laws do make them run. They live in bonds, in bonds they die. And mind its mantle, dreamy net, casts o'er them all and holds them fast. In warp and woof of thought are held. In warp and woof of thought are set earth, hells, and heavens, or worst, or best. No, these are but the outer crust. All space and time, all effect, cause. I am beyond all sense, all thoughts, the witness of the universe. Not two nor many, tis but one, and thus in me, all me's I have. I cannot hate, I cannot shun myself from me. I can but love. From dreams awake, from bonds be free, this mystery, my shadow, cannot frighten me. Know, once for all, that I am he. So these are the 11 verses containing this distilled essence of Swami Vivekananda's message, the message of Vedanta, verses of power and strength, so reminiscent of the Upanishads. And I thought we could just go through a little bit and just think about uh, part by part these uh, these verses. He begins the poem with uh, perhaps it's a call of action, these first two verses, or uh, perhaps a reflection of his own difficulties. He had to pass through such difficulties and really his soul is stirred to the inmost depth. No, he had to face such even attempts on his life. And the greater the difficulties, the more insurmountable the challenges the more deeply the soul is stirred, the more we are called to unfold our best. We are called to dive deep within, call upon the infinite resources which lie within us. Uh, life sometimes seems to be completely inimical. Hmm? After this, this, the third verse, he goes, let eyes grow dim and heart grow faint. So, so we faced with physical difficulties. Our, our, uh, as we age, our eyes grow dim and our heart grows faint. And in our relationships, our friendships fail and love betray. Yes, F let fate its hundred horrors send and clotted darkness block the way all nature wear one angry frown to crush you out. Yes, it's sometimes life seems like that. Everything is going against us. Okay, just here, uh, a month ago, all nature was wearing an angry frown and crushed out the lives of a, a number of people and and crushed out our houses and, and took away our beloved friends and family. And yes, even then, even then, when our, when our physical system is breaking down, our friends are betraying us, and Vivekananda also had to face betrayal 
and uh, known people, friends, going back to India and spreading lies about him, that he was uh, taking advantage of women and, and that kind of thing. Even then, when all these horrors come, still, no, my soul, you are divine. This is the reminder. Here, he's addressing himself. We, are, we can address ourselves. Yes, I am divine. Still, be still and know you are divine. And then, march on and on, nor right nor left, but to the goal. All right, still know. Yes, I'm beginning to accept it, intellectually at least, that I am divine. My true nature is divine. Now, what is my job? Not to stop, as we had in the prayer. Stop not till the goal is reached. March on and on, nor right nor left, but to the goal. We have so many things distracting us, in sp even when we fixed our goal to know who we are, to attain to God-realization, to enlightenment. But there's so many distractions. That's why horses get blinders put on them. If we're really serious about spiritual life, we, we need some kind of spiritual blinders so that we keep the goal fixed. Yes, I am divine. I'm going to realize it. March on and on, forward, forward, forward. And then uh, the next stanzas, we remind ourselves of what we are not. Nor angel I, nor man, nor brute, nor body, mind, nor he, nor she. Who are we really? Who am I really? None of the things we usually think of, none of the things we usually identify ourselves with. We're not animals. Uh, the, the evolutionary biologists will say, oh, yes, human beings are just animals, maybe a little bit more developed animals. Uh, human beings, well, we think of ourselves as human beings, thinking animals who have um, a higher mind, self-consciousness, maybe. Uh, no, not that either. What about an angel? We are angels. Why not? Eternal beings, we, after death, we fly up to heaven on our angelic wings. No, says Swami Vivekananda, no, says the Upanishads, not even that. That's not you either. Nor body, mind, nor he, nor she. Body, we think of ourselves mostly as bodies. I, the, we, we come back to this again and again because it's such a fundamental part of our experience. We are in the body and we feel ourselves to be a body. When it's cold, we say, I am cold. When, we're hung when there's hunger in the body, we say, I'm hungry. I think I am the body. No, says Vedanta. No, you are in a body. All right, but you are not the body. You are not the mind. Nor he nor she. I just read a fascinating article about a study at Harvard in which the researchers found that uh, when we see a human face, the brain immediately determines male or female. Before we are conscious of seeing the person, the brain has already decided male or female, male or female. That's why if you've ever met somebody who, who you can't tell, it's very disconcerting because the brain doesn't know what to do. It's like, well, wait, he or she he can't figure it out. But ordinarily, we don't have any trouble. Immediately, he or she. No, we are not he or she. We are consciousness. We are pure consciousness. And how is it, how is it then? The books do stop in wonder mute to tell my nature. I am he. I am that reality, that infinite reality, in mute wonder, because uh, 
what I am cannot be described in words, which is why the scriptures so often, and this modern scripture we can call it, also tries to describe us by what, by just by saying what we are not, because to say what we are then limits it. If we are unlimited, if our true nature is infinite, then any words circumscribe it, make it limited. So, uh, the books have to stop finally in wonder mute to tell my nature, I am he. Then this wonderful verse, before the sun, the moon, the earth, before the stars or comets free, before in time has had its birth, I was, I am, and I will be. The sages of Vedanta describe the ultimate reality, oftentimes in negative terms, when they use positive terms, they, as I think most of us know this, this term, sat-chit-ananda. Existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute. If we are to try to say anything about that infinite reality, we'll say, all right, it exists, it is. And here, this is that aspect of reality that Swami Vivekananda is pointing out. I am, and not only that, I was, and I was always, and I will be always. Why? because we are beyond time. When we think of eternity, it sounds a little frightening because it means forever. But actually, the true eternity, the true nature of the eternal soul is that it is beyond time. We cannot even conceive of it actually because by conceiving of something, we have to use thoughts and thoughts unfold in time. So, Vivekananda says, how can the soul be said to be existing in time when time itself exists in the soul? It always existed. There was never a time when it did not exist because if the soul did not exist, where was time? Time is in the soul. It is when the soul reflects its powers on the mind and the mind thinks that time comes. So this is the sat the sat, the existence, ahamasmi, I am, I am. That is the one thing we cannot, even now, though we are not perhaps yet illumined souls, enlightened beings, we will not doubt this fact that I am. We will not say, I am not, I do not exist. I, at least that much I know. The beauteous earth, the glorious sun, the calm sweet moon, the spangled sky, causation's laws do make them run. They live in bonds, in bonds they die. This universe is beautiful. Yes, let's admit it, it is beautiful. We feel inspired. Who does not feel deeply moved, say, on a moonlit night or even a moonless night in a, on a mountaintop when one can see the, the thousands of stars and the Milky Way and we feel the infinitude of the universe. And yes, we feel inspired. And we, th we can think, we feel like we can touch God in such a moment. And yet, says Vivekananda, these are also caught in time. They are bound by the laws of cause and effect. They are not free. They had a beginning, and everything which had a beginning will have an end. In bonds, they die. Even our sun, which is such a permanent fixture in our universe for us 
it's a, it's a hydrogen fusion engine. When the hydrogen runs out, it's going to die. Yes, the sun will die. Fascinating uh, conversations that uh, Niverita related with uh, Vivekananda. They were on a ship in the Mediterranean and they were passing uh, in Sicily through the Straits of Messina. I'm not sure where that is, but it's apparently by Sicily. And uh, Mount Etna, the volcano, was in slight eruption against the sunset sky. It was stunningly beautiful. And then the moon rose. So it was this this breathtaking beauty. And she's talking with Vivekananda and he said, Messina must thank me. It is I who give her all her beauty. Then uh, he continues, and mind its mantle, dreamy net casts o'er them all and holds them fast. In warp and woof of thought are set earth, hells and heavens, or worst or best. So the fabric of our experience of life, of our, of all we experience of this universe, including ourselves, what we think of as ourselves, that fabric is made up of thought, thoughts and sensations. Not, not only this universe, the, the Vedantic thinkers go even further. They say even hells and heavens too are still in the realm of mind. They are not yet that which we are. We, our true nature, is beyond all this. No, these are but the outer crust, says Vivekananda. Even earth, hells and heavens, worst and best, all these are but the outer crust. All space and time, all effect, cause, I am beyond all sense, all thoughts, the witness of the universe. This idea of uh, the self, who we are as consciousness, as the witness. First we had the self as existence. Here we have the idea of the self as pure consciousness. That which we are is consciousness itself, not consciousness of something, consciousness in itself. And Vivekananda puts it so directly also in his, we could almost call it another Upanishad, the song of the sannyasin. There is but one, the free, the knower self, without a name, without a form or stain, in him is Maya, dreaming all this dream, the witness. He appears as nature, soul. No, thou art that. There is but one, and thou art that. In that one, all this appears. Nature and soul, all these appear in that one which we are, the witness. Then we come to the 10th verse, we come to practice. And we come to the extreme position of the Advaita, the non-dual philosophy. Not two nor many, not two nor many, just but one. And thus, in me, all me's I have, I cannot hate I cannot shun myself from me. I can but love. Swami Vivekananda here is quoting directly from the Isha Upanishad also, in part. Let me chant that verse. Yastu sarvani bhutanyatmanyevanupashyati sarvabhuteshu chatmanantatonavijugupsati The person of realization beholds all beings 
in the self. Sarvani Bhutani Atmani. In the self, he beholds or she beholds all beings and beholds the self, that one self who I am in all beings. It goes both ways. All beings in me and me in all. We are using the term the self. Swami Vivekananda makes it more approachable by saying in me. Actually, that's me, who I really am, the real me. All me's, all the me's of this world, of this universe are in me. And so then the Upanishads goes on to say that, therefore, does not hate anyone. Na vijugupsate, does not hate. So Vivekananda puts it so clearly. I cannot hate. I cannot shun myself from me. If all being, if all me's are in me, how can I hate? I can but love. So this is, of course, both describing the person of realization and also describing the practice for us. If we don't yet see all me's in me, then we know the practice, which is love. And I love to quote this, also written to Mary Hale, another Upanishadic dictum written to Mary Hale in May of 1896. The eternal, the infinite, the omnipresent, the omniscient is a principle, not a person. You and I and everyone are but embodiments of that principle. And the more of this infinite principle is embodied in a person, the greater is he or she. And all in the end will be the perfect embodiment of that, and thus all will be one, as they are now essentially. This is all there is of religion. That's it. That's all there is of religion. And the practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. Practice. Here we have the practice. So it's eminently practical. The practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. I just caught sight of a, a paper someone's going to deliver on Swami Vivekananda's Prema Advaita. And I thought, yes, there are different schools of non-dualistic thought. There's the extreme position of, of uh, only Brahman exists and everything is a, a, entirely a dream. And Swami Vivekananda's Advaita could be called Prema Advaita, the non-dualism of intense love. What is love but a tendency towards oneness? Now, we're not talking about just love of our children and our parents and our family and friends. We're talking about that universal love which overflows all boundaries and flows to all. And that love is bliss. That love, let's think about it. When we're immersed in love, we're immersed in bliss. Love and bliss are really kind of synonymous. So here we have the ananda aspect of Satchit Ananda described, the ananda aspect of our true nature, which is bliss, which is love. Love spontaneously manifests when we realize our true nature. And it's also the practice through which we realize. And finally, we come to the last verse, the 11th verse, which is a call to awaken from our dreams and know the truth. From dreams awake, from bonds be free. Be not afraid. This mystery, my shadow, cannot frighten me. Know once for all that I am he. 
Swami Vivekananda would, would say. He would call us human beings, ah, we are man, the infinite dreamer, dreaming finite dreams. Our dreams are finite. Arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. Wake up, wake up. This was Swami Vivekananda's message. Wake up. And fear. What fear can we have when all me's are in me? We fear other people. Well, how can we fear someone else when we know that that person and uh, we are one? What fear can we have when we know that I am that indestructible infinite consciousness and bliss? Let this body be crushed out by a boulder. What is that to me? It's just a little body. So it expresses a very high ideal, no doubt. We may have some distance to walk before we get there. But uh, this is the, the glorious message of Vedanta. And this poem, which is more than a poem to me, it really reads like a scripture. It's something that I have memorized it, though now and then I stumbled today. But it's something we can memorize and really let it sink in. Let it bring us that strength. Uh, let it bring us that conviction. Let it bring us to that place when we begin to seek, when we start to seek earnestly and intensely so that we can know this, that we can realize it. And I'd like to offer a little postscript that is worth looking up. Uh, Mary Hale wrote back to Swami Vivekananda in verse, in a delightful poem, uh, on the one hand expressing her regret for her original scolding letter and, and poking fun at, at Vivekananda at the same time. And then Vivekananda replied again in verse, uh, correcting one misunderstanding she had of his doctrine, as it were. And then she wrote back again in verse, and he wrote back again in verse. So there's this back and forth in delightful verse, which really uh, cements our understanding of their very intimate and loving relationship. So this glorious uh, ode to the glory of who we are, set in this wonderful love of brother and sister, that is Vivekananda and Mary Hale. So I thoroughly enjoyed presenting this poem, uh, this ode to you, and uh, may it inspire us to arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. I will close with a chant. Oh. Yam Brahma Varunendra Rudra Marutaha Stunvanti Divyai Stavai Vidai Sangaparakramopanishadai Gayanti Yam Samaga Dhyana Vastita Tadagatena Manasa Pashyanti yam yogino Yasyantam navidu Sura suragana Devayatasmai namaha Devayatasmai namaha Om Shanti 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 our salutations to him who is the truth of life and existence, and whom the sages call by various names. Our salutations to him whose glory is sung in the sacred hymns of the various scriptures of the world, but 
whose limitless and infinite grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our salutations to him on whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their hearts and realize his ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he illumine our understanding and prompt our minds to the path of truth and righteousness. May he reveal himself unto our souls and dispel the gloom of delusion, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om peace, peace, peace. I'd like to thank you also for uh, giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts with you. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.